Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, uh, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, I'll be reading verses 16 through 18. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, the verses are printed on the back of the bulletin this morning. So uh, we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And if you are able, please stand as we read God's word this morning together. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray with me. God, we thank you for uh, these short but very important uh, verses this morning. And God, as your, your word tells us this morning to rejoice always, God, we all feel and we all know that this is something that we can't do without you, without the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and in our hearts. And so, God, we pray this morning, even right now, uh, during this service, God, would you move in our hearts would you help us to rejoice this morning? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to begin with a simple question, which is, do you believe in coincidences? Do you believe in coincidences? I do not believe in coincidences, and I'll tell you why. So when I was in my youth group many years ago, uh, I was at this, we, we had this youth rally or youth conference uh, that met in this old warehouse. And um, there, it was a really powerful uh, conference and God was working in my heart. And at the end of it, uh, I found this sticker on the ground, this big bright sticker. And it wasn't stuck to the ground, it was just laying on the ground. But it related to the talk, and I won't go into all of it, but it really spoke to me. Uh, really uh, God used that sticker on the ground to, to speak to me. And so I told an uh, adult volunteer in my youth group how God really spoke to me through this you know, random sticker on the ground. He said, well, you should share that with the youth group. They would be really encouraged by this. And so I'm you know, like a freshman in this youth group with about 70 kids, and I'm really nervous. And the youth pastor brings me up, and he says, you know, this morning Hunter has something he, he wants to share with us. And uh, take it away, and he you know, puts the mic in my face. And uh, I'm very nervous. And, you know, with public speaking, you normally get up there and you know your first line, and you're kind of, you'll kind of launch off of your first line, you know? So that's as far as I had gotten. And my first line was, I don't believe in coincidences. I was going to be my kind of, you know, lead, well, I was going to lead with that. But I was really nervous, and he sticks the mic in my face, and I actually fumbled my words. I said the wrong word. I meant to say, I don't believe in coincidences. What I actually said was, I don't believe in consequences. <laughs> and my, the youth pastor jerks the microphone away and says, all right, thank you so much, Hunter, for that. I mean, what worse thing can you say to like 70, you know, 17-year-olds than I don't believe in consequences? And so I tried to recover, how can you? Um, but providentially, I've never forgotten the shame of that moment, and I've been constantly reminded that I don't believe in coincidences. I do believe in consequences, but I always remember I don't believe in coincidences. 
That doesn't mean everything is of ultimate importance, but I believe God is sovereign. I believe God controls even ordinary things. In his Institutes of Religion, Calvin describes how God even controls the direction of the wind, or maybe in our case, the absence of the wind. It's all, even ordinary things are controlled by God. And so on a Sunday morning when we come to church, it's no coincidence the scripture that we're reading. I believe that God has sovereignly every morning, every Sunday morning given, given us a certain text for us this day, this moment. And so I believe that these words are specifically relevant for us today. I'm really um, impressed by how Adam and Daryl preach a sermon almost every single week. How, how they do that, I'll never know, but I, I have a lot more time between my sermons, and so I have a lot more time to kind of sit on what I'm learning. And I knew I was going to be preaching this text about six weeks ago. Adam said, your text is rejoice always. So I've had six weeks just to be thinking, rejoice always? What does that mean? I mean, I don't know what the past six weeks have looked like for, for you, um, but I feel like the past six weeks have given me and I would assume all of us, plenty of reasons to feel like we should not, you know, rejoice always. And it's not just the major events, the major tragedies, which it seems like 2020 is perfectly capable to furnish on a weekly basis, but it's the, it's the small things. It's, you know, the other day I'm trying to go to the grocery store and I'm in a hurry. I need to get one thing. I hop out of my truck. I trek across the parking lot, but I forgot my mask. Rookie mistake. Person at the door tells me to go get my mask. I go back, I get my mask, I put it on, it fogs up my glasses, I almost get hit by a car trying to get back to the front door, and then I walk in, and I'm just trying to get one thing from the middle of the store, but there are all these arrows you have to follow, and I'm trying to be a good citizen and follow the, all the arrows, you know, three aisles down and two aisles, and I ended up in the back left corner of the store, and there was a sign that said, you lose. I'm like, Go directly to jail. Do not collect 200 if you pass go. I mean, all joking aside, it really seems like we're living in a time that it feels like it's designed just to sap our joy, does it not? And so for six weeks I've been asking, was Paul serious? Did he really mean to say, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances? So this morning, I want us to take a look at these verses and ask three simple questions. The first is, what does it really mean? What does it really mean to rejoice always? Second, how do we do it? How do we rejoice always? And then third, why does it matter? So what does it really mean? How do we do it? And why does it matter? So first, what does it really mean to rejoice always? Interestingly, this is the shortest verse in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Now, many of you are instantly thinking, wait a second, Jesus wept. Isn't that the shortest verse in the, in the Bible, John 11.35? Well, in English, John 11.35 is the shortest verse, but in Greek, letter for letter, this is the shortest verse in the Bible, rejoice always. And if we want to understand this verse, we have to look at these kind of Two pills to swallow. The first is rejoice, and the second is always. And so let's start with rejoice. What does it really mean? In Greek, just like in English, the, the root of the word rejoice is just simply joy. 
So I think in English, we get rejoice from to rejoy. Uh, in fact, in English, the word joy used to be a verb. It is no longer. It's kind of interesting. Maybe we've forgotten how to do it. I don't know. But joy used to be a, a verb. You could joy in this or joy in that. In, in Greek, the word rejoice that we're looking at literally is the word joy. And so if you were to scan the Bible and try to figure out what is the biblical concept of joy, you would find that it's a really, it's a really robust concept. It's a really common and important theme in the Bible. Here are at least four things that joy is in the Bible. I'm sure there are more, but here are four. It is emotional, divine, invincible, and realistic. If you were to study joy in the Bible, you would see that it's emotional, divine, invincible, and realistic. So real quick, it's emotional. Joy is emotional. One Bible dictionary says, joy as a religious emotion is very, very frequently referred to in the Old Testament. Religion is conceived of as touching the deepest springs of emotion, including the feeling of exultant gladness, which often finds outward expression in such actions as leaping, shouting, and singing. Joy is repeatedly shown to be the natural outcome of fellowship with God. So joy is, if it's anything, it's, it's emotional. It's an emotional thing, leaping, shouting, singing. As Presbyterians, we might be a little bit uncomfortable with that concept. My favorite Presbyterian joke is that a Baptist and a Presbyterian were friends, and as the Baptist studied his Bible, he became envious of his Presbyterian friend, and eventually he confessed his sin to him and said, and said I'm so jealous of you Presbyterians. And the Presbyterian, of course, forgave him and, and said, well, why are you so jealous? And he said, well, I've been studying the Bible, and Presbyterians get to go to heaven first, and I'm just so upset about that. And the Presbyterian was like, well, I, I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. Where did you read that? And the Baptist said, well, it says right here, the dead in Christ will be raised first. So you, you get the joke. I mean, but as we shouldn't be afraid of emotions. Maybe we should be afraid of emotionalism, making it all about emotions, but we are called to love God with all of our heart. You know, even the Beatitudes, which say, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, that could be translated as happy. You know, happier the poor, happier the meek. And so joy is an emotional thing. It's not only emotional, though, it's also a divine thing. Joy is not just a human emotion, but according to the Bible, joy is a divine emotional experience. It's a divine attribute of God. It's divine because God feels it. If you study God as a character in the Old Testament, he's not some sort of detached, impassable, unfeeling force. He's described as a being who feels deeply, who feels even deeper than we do. To use just one example, Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in the midst of you, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will exult over you with singing. That word, the ESV says exult, is actually joy. He will joy over you with singing. Joy is something that is divine. Not only divine because God feels it, but also because God gives it. Joy is something that can only come from him. Psalm 4, 7 says, you have put, talking to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. And so joy is something that God can actually place into our hearts. And then on the opposite side, Ecclesiastes 2.25 says, For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And so joy is something that comes from God. 
In Galatians 5.22, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. And lastly, John, Jesus says in John 15, he says in John 15.11, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus gives his joy to his disciples. It's emotional, it's divine, it's also invincible. If you study the Christian concept of joy, what you find is that this joy is invincible. I call it that because right before Jesus goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, right now you're sorrowful, but I will see you again. He's talking about the resurrection. And then he says, and when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. So Christian joy is described as something that can't be snatched away. It cannot be defeated. And if you look at it even more, it's, it's really kind of you know, interesting because Christian joy doesn't just withstand trouble or persecution. Christian joy actually flourishes in trouble and in persecution. I mean, consider Matthew 5 where Jesus says, blessed are you or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Or Paul in Romans 5 says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 7, when we came into Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But in the same breath, Paul says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. I mean, just to tell you how kind of crazy it sounds, there's a story in Acts 5 where Peter and the apostles are teaching in the name of Jesus, and the Pharisees and religious leaders don't like that. They bring them into this council, and they say, you got to quit doing this. And they're like, we're not going to quit doing this. And so Acts 5.40, they beat the apostles and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What's the response of the apostles in Acts 5.41? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I mean, if someone beats you and you rejoice, you are either very weird or you are a Christian who understands the gospel. Joy is emotional, it's divine, it's invincible, but it's also realistic. It's realistic. And maybe I could do a better job with that word. It's like, it's serious, it's gritty. It's not, it's not just optimistic, it's, it's very realistic. It is interesting, isn't it, that the, the two shortest verses in the Bible, one says rejoice always, and the other says Jesus wept. And so Christian joy is not naive. It's not a joy that's incompatible with sorrow. It's not a joy that, it's not a joy that doesn't, Pretends like sorrow doesn't exist. Paul says that we should weep with those who weep. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. And what you see about Christian joy is that it has the power actually to shape our grief. Christ, Christian joy can actually take our grief and it can shape it. And it's not the other way around. Our grief does not shape our joy. Our joy is what shapes our grief. And this is why in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, as we already read, Paul says, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. There's something, there's something about this Christian joy that's, that's gritty, that's realistic. It's, there's a logic to it. It's, it's reasonable. 
I think of the story that Jesus um, tells of the parable of the treasure in the field. He says the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven, as if someone should find a, a treasure in a field. And then it says, in his joy, he goes, he sells everything that he has and he buys, he buys that field. And so there's, there's a logic to it, right? It's not, it's not an unreasonable joy. Everything this guy has, it doesn't compare to the value of the treasure. And so he sells it all in his joy to take the treasure. This is a joy that's serious for all these reasons, but it's also a serious joy because it's a joy that led Jesus to the cross. We read in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand the throne of God. It was, it was joy that led Jesus to the cross. And so this is a robust concept of joy. It's emotional, it's divine, it's invincible, it's realistic. Well, that's all great, so, but how do we use it, right? So that's, I think this is what joy is in the Bible, but how do we do it? Well, we've already said that joy is a divine, it's a divine thing. You can't get joy apart from God. Not this joy, not this Christian joy. Psalm 4, 7, right? You've put joy in my heart, Ecclesiastes 2. Apart from you, who can have enjoyment? So God is the only source of joy. And if that's the case, then to get this type of joy, we have to go to him. That's what it says in Psalm 16, 11, when it says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And so interestingly, in these verses, what Paul does is he actually gives us a formula for how to rejoice always. He doesn't just tell us to do it and hope we figure it out. But if you look at these verses, Paul is connecting these three ideas. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And then if you're reading the ESV, there's a semicolon there. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the this is the will of God is referring back to all three of those things. To all three commands, to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks in all circumstances. So we have this, this triad of commands, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And what's interesting is Paul uses this in other places in the Bible. He uses it at the end of Romans 12, in, in verse 12, for instance. But maybe the place where he kind of elaborates the most upon it is in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, which says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So there is a formula to rejoicing always here. And really quickly, let's talk about the frequency of this formula, when we should use it, and then the process of how we use it. Well, first, just to make it clear, Paul says rejoice always. And he says this in no uncertain terms to mean always. I mean, in Philippians 4, he says rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And if we look at our text today in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Paul is trying to say this is not a, this is not a, a thing you do at your best moments. This is something you do all the time, in all circumstances. Pandemic, racial crisis, 
doesn't matter. This is an all-time sort of thing. So what's the process? Well, he says rejoice always, and then always following this. When Paul commands us to rejoice, he says pray. He says pray without ceasing. And so there is no path to joy other than prayer. And sometimes I think we take prayer, we make it like a, a chore, like brushing your teeth, you know, like the thing you have to do as a Christian, but it's kind of it's ho-hum or whatever. And I think we even have an unhealthy view of prayer because we kind of evaluate our prayers, you know, like, yeah, how, my, how is my prayer life? I'm probably a seven out of 10 or something. And I just think it's, I think maybe we have a works mindset when it comes to prayer and not a relationship mindset when it comes to prayer. Prayer is simply a relationship with God and communicating with God. It's, it's relationship and it's communication. You know, I actually got a degree in communication in undergrad and um, I spent four years studying communication. I learned next to nothing about communication and then I got married and I spent four days married, and I got a master's degree in communication. And uh, I, what, I, what I've learned in my brief t- uh, tenure as a married person is that there are certain things required to make communication work. You know, communication is key, but how does it work in a marriage? Well, one thing is I have to be honest. We have to be vulnerable to communicate. If you're not bringing your real self into the conversation, then you are not there. You have to bring your real self, your honest self, into the conversation. And so it is with God. We can be more real with God than with anyone else. Prayer is us bringing our true self before the throne of God. But not only that, there are certain rules to communication. Someone told me before I got married, they said, uh, whoever you marry, you're going to fight with them for the rest of your life. So marriage is just picking who you want to fight with for the rest of your life. And uh, there's some truth to that. And fighting is not necessarily bad as long as you fight fair. There are certain rules of engagement. I, I need to be totally honest and vulnerable, and yet I need to remember who I'm talking to. I'm talking to my, my wife. I'm talking to my spouse in my marriage. I'm not talking to a punching bag. I'm not talking to a bro. I'm talking to the love of my life, and I need to treat her in that way. It is no different with prayer. We need to remember who it is we are talking to. God is not a punching bag. Jesus is not your boyfriend. He's the God of the universe. He's your savior. He loves you. He knows you. He created you. And that's why Paul says, with thanksgiving, give thanks in all circumstances. Paul is kind of teaching us a trick to prayer, a tip to prayer, rules for engagement to prayer, which is that as we pray and as we are honest with God, we should mingle all of our prayers with thanksgiving. Why? Because thanksgiving is what Christians do when they tell themselves the truth. Thanksgiving is simply acknowledging God for who he is. In fact, in Romans 1, where it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. I mean, in the Bible, in Paul, to be unthankful is to equal not being a Christian, to be lost. And to be a Christian is to be thankful. Well, why is that? 
Because when we are thankful, we're just living in light of reality. As we are thankful, we are, we are just recognizing who God really is, what God has really done. One commentator says, when a person prays without giving thanks, he has clipped the wings of prayer so that it cannot rise. And this leads me to ask you a couple questions. When is the last time that you individually had an honest conversation with God? And prayer is not just moving your lips, it's lifting your heart to him. Have you done that in the past six weeks? Have you done that in the past six months? And when you do pray to God, when you do have an honest conversation with him, however that looks for you, are you, are you telling yourself the truth? Be honest with, him, with God about how you feel, but are you telling yourself the truth about who God is, what God has done? We could always talk longer, I guess, but let's move on. What does it really mean? How do we use it? The last question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? I think, as I've studied this and as we've walked through it, I think it matters that we have joy and that we rejoice because this is just what it means to be a Christian. I've put a quote on the back of your uh, bulletin from John Calvin commentating on this verse, and he says this, Unquestionably, if we consider what Christ has conferred upon us, what Christ has given to us, there will be no bitterness or grief so intense as may not be alleviated and give way to spiritual joy. And then he says this, For if this joy does not reign in us, the kingdom of God is at the same time banished from us or we from it. And very ungrateful is that man to God who does not set so high a value on the righteousness of Christ and the hope of eternal life as to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. I mean, Calvin is getting at the point that this, this joy is not an accessory to the Christian faith. It's the very heart of the Christian faith. This joy is just what it means to believe the gospel. Another commentator says, interestingly, that there are various words in the New Testament that occur with startling frequency that are derivatives of the word joy. For instance, the word for grace, the word for forgive, the word for give thanks, and another for gifts of the Spirit. All of these have their root grammatically in this word joy. And this is about more than just grammar, it's about the gospel. A joyless Christian has no deep understanding of grace. A joyless Christian has no ability to forgive. A joyless Christian has no reason to thank God. And a joyless Christian has no evidence of the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, there is no such thing as a joyless Christian. It's a contradiction of terms. It matters for eternity. It matters because this is what it means to be a Christian. Another reason it matters is it matters for your neighbor. It matters for your brothers and sisters in Christ, but it also matters for your lost neighbors. Remember the example of the, the Thessalonian church. In chapter 1, it says, Paul says, You received the word in much affliction, chapter 1, verse 6. You received the word in much affliction. The very next thing he says is, With the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then he says that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Our joy is one way that we are an example to other believers. 
And so I have to ask the question, are you living out of this joy? Are you posting on social media out of this joy? Are you being an example to other believers? Are you being a witness to a world that is desperate for this type of joy? That's why it's so important that we rejoice. It matters for today. Maybe it matters today more than it ever has for us. One of the points I've really wanted to make clear is how totally inseparable our joy is from Jesus. You know, our joy, you can't get it apart from the person, Jesus. And it's interesting that Paul says at the end of verse 18, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, this is the will of God seems strong enough. You know, if this is the will of God, we should all do it. And Jesus is God, so is it kind of redundant for him to say, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you? What is Paul meaning when he says, in Christ Jesus here? I don't think he's being redundant. I think he's actually re-emphasizing how this entire thing works. Joy is emotional, and it's divine, it's invincible, it's realistic. We can't get it apart from Jesus or from God. And so the real question to ask is this. Does God want you to have joy? That's the question I think you should ask. Is, well, does God want me to have this joy? If it's in his power to give it to me in any circumstance, does he want me to really have it? I think the, the most evil lie of Satan is not that God somehow hates us or is against us or whatever. I think the most evil lie of Satan is this, that God doesn't care about you, that God's indifferent to you, that God doesn't want you to be happy or something like that. But this simple phrase, in Christ Jesus, reminds us that that is not true. Of course God cares about you. He cared about you enough to send Jesus. God cares actually about you more than you care about yourself. We spend so much time trying to make ourselves happy and find joy and fail to realize God actually wants us to be joyful even more than we want to be joyful. I'm reminded of Psalm 18 where David says, talking about Jesus, he sent from on high and took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. And then listen to this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God wants to rescue you. God wants you to have joy because you are a part of his joy. God delights in you. As I get ready to conclude this sermon and as we begin to prepare for communion, I want to end by sharing a story about joy. And it's actually a story I've already shared. You know the parable of the treasure hidden in, in a field? It tells the story of a Christian who finds the kingdom of heaven in a field and sees the value of the kingdom of heaven and of Christ and in his joy goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. That tells the story of a Christian stumbling upon the, the kingdom of heaven. But it also tells another story. It tells a story of Jesus purchasing his treasure. Because you see, Jesus left heaven. He sold everything 
he had. He left all the riches that he had in heaven, and he is the one who purchased the field on the cross. He purchased the treasure, which is us. And this is the amazing thing. God doesn't just want you to experience joy. He doesn't just want that. But he also wants you so that he can experience something. God actually wants us to be involved in his experience of joy. He rescues us because he delights in us. To quote C.S. Lewis here, he calls it, we have the opportunity to be an ingredient in the divine happiness. And here's what he says. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. This morning, I hope you see that we are called to have joy and rejoice and God is inviting us to be a piece of his joy, a real ingredient in the divine happiness. And if you think about that long enough, that is a reason for us to rejoice and to rejoice always. Pray with me. God, I'm amazed to think that you would leave heaven. You would sell, sell all that you had to, to purchase the field, to buy your treasure. And God, how it is that you delight in us in such a powerful way. It's a mystery. But God, it's a mystery that we need more than ever today. And God, I just pray for us as a church that we could experience true Christian joy, a joy that is emotional and divine and invincible and gritty. God, we need it now more than ever. And pray this not just for Redeemer, but for your church in the United States and your church in the world. We pray that we could live out of a true Christian joy that the shapes our grief and that others would see this and be drawn to worship you as Savior. We love you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen.